Hey everybody, Daniel here with some plugs. We are on the interweb at albumorientedpodcast.com. Visit us there, take a look at the list, some other goodies. Also, we are on Facebook at facebook.com front slash albumorientedpodcast. Also, please subscribe on iTunes and other platforms and leave us good reviews to increase visibility of the Album Oriented Podcast. And now, on with the show. Two, three, four. One, two, three, one, a two, a one, two, three. Two guys who grew up during the album era. Two lists of the 100 albums of all time. This is Album Oriented. For the purposes of dramatic conflict and also based in reality, I am Eric Kurtz, the apologetic indie snit anglophile who never stops paying attention to mainstream music. And I am Daniel Nestor, the unapologetic mainstream champion who watched every episode of 120 Minutes and has pockets of obscuro factoids. taping oh this this episode marks the first time we're using these fancy little popper things so i want the diffusers for the that's what they're called for the mic yeah because i went into a guitar center i was like can i have the poppy anti-poppy poopy poppy the the anti-pops they must have been like we'll charge this guy double he's an idiot (laughs) so i don't think you'll hear any more pops we're hoping gentle audience unless we get too passionate unless we talk about the passion and we get too passionate. Gonna be in. Gumby in. I was like, who's Gumby? And why is Michael Stipe singing about him? Gumby in two times. Ting, ting. <laughs> Did I have, have I talked about that? I think it's French, actually, so it didn't help Get anything, fu- right? Is it French? I think it's, yeah, I think it's Combien, you know? No, Combien. it's not. I'm, I'm almost positive. You could send away for the lyric sheet off of uh, that. There was a little thing like send away for the lyric sheet. I didn't do it because I didn't want to know the you words. You didn't want to know. Didn't want it. It was the first time ever. I was like, I don't want to know the words. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. We should fair use that shit, man. We could. 
we should include that. It, and we will right here. It, Take a listen. We have t-shirts by now, I'm sure. Somebody, our people have. So it was the, the fan-made, fan-made t-shirts. <laughs> exactly. Like, Thank you for your submissions, by the way, everyone, for the designs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we got to have a logo. That's, what, that's why people have logo contests. It's like, we can't afford a graphic designer, so let's have a logo contest. <laughs> exactly. The last time we were here, we were, we were still deep in the 60s, and today we jump... Uh, into the mid '90s, we are in the '90s. Yeah, it's a thirty-year it's a thirty-year jump today. I'm going to confess and say when I think not when I think PJ Harvey, I think '90s. But her two best not, her two best it's, albums or her two best well-regarded albums are aughts and yeah, like early. Be careful about that. That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> no. It's true. It's 2000 yeah. and 2011 are the two albums that are on the list. Yeah. So it's our album today, yes, is from 2000. Let England Shake? Is Let, that Let England Shake is the other one from 2011. That's, 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 that's like in the 30s or something, or that's higher up. Yeah, the, yeah. the NME loved I gotta it. Be car- I got I to be careful, listeners, about, you know, because my uh, compadre, Eric Hertz, loves these two albums, and I love one and have grown to like the other, so <laughs> I just have to dodge. I'm not sure which is which yet, yeah, but we'll, we'll get there in just, yeah. just a second. No, because I think of them as contemporaneous, because um, P.J. Harvey's Dry, which is still probably my favorite album right. by her. And that was the one I, I bought I, like exactly. to, at that time. That you know I didn't buy. Yeah, we'll talk about that yeah. in a moment, but yeah. That was in 95, so it was, it's the same time as Buckley was recording. Switching topics slightly, are there any apologies, retractions, or clarifications you like to make musings about last time yeah about last time we banged a gong on the way on the way out we sure did and uh no but i was uh, i was thinking more over the last week about how you know sergeant pepper in 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 some ways or in some narrative of rock history seems to come out of nowhere you know in ways that the beatles have been tinkering in the studio but then suddenly sergeant pepper arrived or something but I actually got. I was thinking about the Moody Blues for some reason uh, this last week, and uh, I don't know if you know the story about Days of Future Past. Nights in White Satin. Nights in White Satin was the big hit off of that. But it, it, was that in your in your world at all? Moody Blues. I, I this never makes the lists at all, even though it was a pretty big album at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no. You did? You, were you? Nah. I mean, I, if you, it's one of those stories that I'm sure I've heard. But if you tell me, I, oh no, I might... I'm just asking if the album was in your world, or you, or you just knew that one song, "Nights in White Satin." I think I which might. Which we'll, we'll play here underneath to remind our listeners. But I can't say because I love you.
I mean, I might I I might have heard this story, but I, I did not have parents who had that album. Although I bet you your parents had it. Maybe. Oh, my parents had it. Right, right. I know I know it front to back. Yeah, my parents had a weird motley mix of not hip music. You know, Barry Manilow and the Chorus Line soundtrack. I mean, it, it was it was not good. Boss gags, if you said. Yes, yeah, so degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, so. okay, but at any rate, uh, yeah, the Moody Blues were almost done as a band, uh, and uh, Decca Records actually had uh, an idea to bring in the London Symphony Orchestra to show off not only their studio capabilities, but also how good their recording technology That's was. coming back to me now, like right. that, that it, was, it was almost like, uh, you know, you still see them in, old, in re- used record stores, like the sampler records, like, uh, you know, bought from a label, and then in that same population would be like demo records like not not even like sound effects but sound effects like left right left right you <laughs> yeah, know? You're like whoa that, yeah. yeah so this was a, a, a more artistic version of that like, yeah i mean but what was weird is that i grew up with that album just thinking well this is just the way that the album was but the, the fact of the matter is, is that it was decca records with the London Symphony Orchestra, and I think they had something called Decca Sound, or you know, they had some mm-hmm. sort of like what they wanted to call it. Uh, and they so it was a studio in search of a band. Like, who was going to be the band to come into the studio to play with the whole setup? There's going to be a Moody Blues fan out there who's going to get really angry at this question. <laughs> but they had hits before this, right? I mean, they yeah, they would already establish them. Yeah, they already had I not so many hits. So they their yeah. hit their hits came later, but but yeah, like I said, they were they're middling. I think they were thinking maybe we're done. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that album came out in '67. It's this exact same year as Sgt. Pepper. So uh, just like we when we brought up Zappa last last week too, it's like it's not that this whole idea as the album as a concept, which we continue to talk about more as we go along, um, but it's all about the fact that the Beatles did it. That the world's biggest pop band. There's so many <laughs> decided to There's do so it. many examples of that in art, right? Like where, you know, the person one artist A has the breakthrough hit that's considered groundbreaking, but if you dig a little deeper, you'll see that there's a whole history behind it, and there might even be people who did that before. Like uh Pharaoh I think it's like Pharaoh Sanders, like the creator has a master plan. Oh, Never forget, I was in a record store, wow. Final Vinyl in like Haddon Heights, New Jersey. Yeah, kids, and I was, kids Google Pharaoh Sanders. Because yeah, yeah, that is not in your, uh, no, yeah, in your in your rock and indie, right? And this I, is this is avant jazz. But what would be in the I think indie canon would be me at you know 19 years old saying, "Have you ever heard of John Coltrane? I really love Love Supreme. <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like to listen to more of that stuff." And the guy, Who's this Coltrane fella, you're talking <laughs> totally about, totally like that, but really sincere. And I was, yeah. oh, I just really love this, you know, and don't think it's quite true, but this sounds mighty familiar to right. a love the song "A Love Supreme," the title track, the creator has a master plan because it has that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And they were and they were out, they were like uh, uh, album side length songs exactly. And to yeah. what degree people regard a Love Supreme as coming out of nowhere or whatever, but it is regarded as like a, a landmark album. It is, yeah. And 
you know, other examples abound. You know, they they do. Yeah, yeah. but it, but that's a that's a great point to bring up because we like we take as a given now that's that Sergeant Pepper's has gone down in currency in some way because we've decided to adopt this other narrative uh, along the canon of the top 100s or whatever. Right. And that, to the as point we discussed last time. The one book I think I referred to is is and I have it the Amazon page in front of me how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll an alternative history of American popular music. And so that and it's by uh, Elijah Wald. He's a you know sort of musicologist type mm. guy. It's a bit it's thick thick reading at least for somebody thick like me. But <laughs> he is making this point that you know the Beatles, and in particular, I think, like, Sgt. Pepper's era stuff. Yeah, I'd be curious where, to know when he thinks the Beatles destroyed rock. And I think it's Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, I don't think it's, like, when they're doing, like, uh, you know, Tutti Frutti in Hamburg or something. You know? <laughs> no, it's not. But, but is it, you know, but is it a Please Please Me or something, you know, when uh, rock and roll was somehow domesticated or something? I but, think I think he but, has, like, take your era. You know, pick your era. <laughs> he destroyed it all along the way. It was, you like, know. just a cancer that grew slowly, right. yeah. I often think of, and we can cut this out if it sounds a little too, you know, pretentious or literary or never, whatever. Never. <laughs> but I'm a big William Carlos Williams guy. Oh, you maybe know? maybe we should cut it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, let me just stop you right there. <laughs> but a lot of people talk about how T.S. Eliot like changed things with American poetry because indeed he wasn't American at that point. He was pretty much British, and. Um, that wave of influence on T.S. Eliot rather than the more American way of looking at things with William Carus Williams, like the choice of language, meter, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of times people think about the beach. What if the beach boys survived and had their like white album and let it be and, like stayed as brilliant and went down that alternate path. <laughs> yeah. Rather than those Brits, you know, who are like T.S. Eliot in this location, you know, analogy. Well, the, what the weird thing is, and then we should probably move on to our yeah. <laughs> under the nineties is that as if we were living in some sort of Phil K. Dick novel, <laughs> right? The beach boys did have those albums. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they were not recognized right. uh, as such in, in America, but we'll, we have, right. when we get to the beach boys, we'll, we'll right. from now, we'll, we'll but the, the other thing that occurs to me is that the nuggets anthologies was another effort to, to have people recognize that Americans, American, Americans. American garage bands were doing like vital, important work, but the Beatles were just such an unstoppable force at that point. Yeah, both as themselves and their influence, that whole you know wings of music was being ignored, and whether that constituted the true rock and roll uh, is, I guess, up for debate because yeah. uh, rock and roll seemed to do pretty well between you know Sgt. Pepper's and you know, up until, you know, now, according to me, but, but to other people, it's like, well, you know, it led to Foreigner and Journey and all those bad bands. When, you know, and I'm raising my hand saying, I, I like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or all the other concept albums that, right. that don't make it anywhere past, I think, Sgt. Pepper. Although I think... I think Zappa actually makes an appearance uh, later, but it, nonetheless. Zappa's in this list? Zappa's in the list, yeah. It, it might be we're only in it for the money. That would be great if it's that one. But anyway, that's the mothers of invention, but nonetheless. And I, I just want to apologize for my Dolly Parton segment because I, I think I probably got a lot of stuff wrong Listen, or something. You know. We did the best we could. We did the best we could. I think it's an odd duck choice. I still We might be banned from Dolly, Dolly Land. We are definitely from banned from Dolly Land. <laughs> 
are y'all from the y'all from the album oriented podcast with seven listeners that's right yeah i'm dolly fucking parton <laughs> these gentlemen are going to escort you out the premises <laughs> I'm going to take you to the Creationism Museum down the road. Oh, here we go. <laughs> and we've lost the South. <laughs> Glad that we had our um, um, aperitif. Is it aperitif? Digestif. Sure. Digestif. Digestif. That's right, yes. Of T-Rex. Um, that, was, that was wonderful to, uh, to hear. Such, yeah. a hip, such a hipster pick, dude. I know. I Actually, later I was thinking, I, I do actually... Albums that regularly get referred to as uh, transition albums, I I, I find yeah. myself liking better <laughs> than the oh you know like the New Order pick uh, from several episodes ago, the Power Corruption and Lies. Uh, the album before that, Movement, is considered a transition move moment. Nerd. <laughs> a transition yeah. to this great. They finally know who they are. I like that other one better. Yeah, where the the tensions between what they what they were and where they were trying to go are more. more there's no of, there's no more new order in this list, is there? You're just like that's right. One, that's right. One more time. Like uh, I just want to talk about new order one more time. I'm gonna put the whole album in right here. <laughs> okay, after the forty minute break, we'll be back. Forty minute break. Yes. Had my way. I I, uh, I I stuck in dreams never end, off of movement as my transition. Oh, nice transition between. I didn't. Between I didn't know that. I didn't see you behind the DJ I, I, booth. Yeah, there. I, I joked about forty minutes worth of uh, New Order's uh, first album, <laughs> the transition album. But nonetheless, here we find ourselves. And, and Jeff Buckley, I'm glad you get to talk about it because I'm gonna. It'd be difficult for me to do it. So I want to take you back to. Uh, August 1994. This is... Uh, that's, <laughs> you, I'm ready. Oh, is that I'm you ready. shuddering? Did you just shudder? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sniffling. That's the month and year when Grace 
Jeff Buckley's only complete studio album was released. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that was the month I moved to New York City. That was the very month. Wow, all right. And uh, I had a few friends who lived in the city, and my friend uh, Bill was raving about this new this this singer guitar guy named Jeff Buckley who he would go to see at this uh, um, we I think we talked off air about uh, Phil Hartman doing Frank Sinatra and him calling uh, <laughs> Sinead O'Connor Sinead Sinead yes. so I remember uh, looking at, telling him like and cue ball him, yeah. him yeah. pointing at the sign of Sinead uh, the the club where Jeff Buckley would play his. Mm. Uh, solo, you know these wondrous things, and right, right. this certain there's this, a great EP by the way. That right, live performances, at, yeah, live at Cheney, yeah. live at Cheney, and so here he was raving about a guy who just played guitar and sang, and uh, that really struck me, right? So I started, I, I bought the album, and and uh, it, it was, I mean, it was just like everything I'd heard and nothing, nothing I'd heard before, if that makes sense at all. I mean, it was like. Mm. I was starting to get into Nina Simone at the time, and and uh, of course, you know, any man in falsetto is wonderful to me. Um, and I was, I think, around that time, people were also getting into, you know, sort of French chanson like art song and uh, you know, chanteuse type music, and that's that's what, part of the mix that goes into what makes Jeff Buckley tick. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and Jeff Buckley described himself as a chanteuse with a penis, which yeah, both right. describes his influences, also his sense of humor. If you, <laughs> if you look at any interview clip it's with true. Jeff Buckley, yeah. he, you know, he's, he's a, he's a funny guy. He says, that he said that his biggest influences, and this just tugs my heartstrings was Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti and George Carlin's AM FM. <laughs> So let me yeah. back up a little bit just for our audience about who Jeff Buckley is, because some of our audience might not know. Jeff Buckley, singer, guitarist, son of f- folk legend Tim Buckley. Tim Buckley, by the way. Biological son. Who, who, whom I almost chose uh, for the last uh, episode's kicker pick. That would have been a nice lead-in, I guess, he was, right? Yeah, I would have had I not been so committed to the T-Rex, but he was part of that. I don't want to call it psych folk, but some of that that larger, uh, you know, more expansive folk, experimental folk music of the of the late 60s. Right. Yeah. And I think um, he's, he's somebody who has like a bit of a mini revival every once in a while, like a reissue of an album, let's say, or... You know, we talked about I think Nick Drake before. How do people find that person? How do how do people rediscover these people? Right. Um, you know, we recently had yet another um, anniversary of Woodstock. I mean, it happens every year. You can't stop those anniversaries. <laughs> but one story I came across was this one singer songwriter guy, Bert Summer. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you noticed on my or if I gave you any links or whatever. But he there's he's not in the movie. He was cut out of the movie, but he was the only standing ovation. Singer, guitar, falsetto. <laughs> Bert Summer, <laughs> member of like uh, the cast of Hair. So many people came out of these casts of Hair. Right? That's right. Yeah, and uh, it just reminded me like how much power that <laughs> male falsetto and a guitar, you know, has. <laughs> so Buckley I, had sort of a higher voice in general, but yes, but he could. Certainly, send it oh, up. Oh yeah, quite yeah. A, quite a bit. Yeah. So with these uh, two influences, like uh, you know Led Zeppelin and and George Carlin, you, you move from 
that to uh, you know the encyclopedic knowledge of of records this guy this boy had. Mm. Uh, I forget what age he was in nineteen ninety because we're going to talk about that the the Tim Buckley um, greetings from Tim Buckley is that is that mm. what's called right yeah, yeah. Uh, a Hal Wilner produced I love all of Hal Wilner's joints <laughs> don't you like the uh, is somebody calls them all as well? uh, that's what I call Wilner joint that's what I call them damn it uh, but you know Hal Wilner's like Stay Awake you know the Disney dedicated album where different he. He sort of produced all these different artists doing <laughs> Disney movie things like Los Lobos doing, you know, I want to be just like you. <laughs> and so it was a night of Tim Buckley music at St. Anne's in Brooklyn. Right. And um, this was in 1990, I'm fairly sure. And if I get it wrong next episode, right. I'll, I'll correct. I think that's right, though. Yeah. And he was, I don't, I don't know exactly how he was like selected to be part of it. I think he was in New York. You mean besides being his son. Right, right. I mean, like, how did they find him? I mean, I guess emails were around then. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> did they, like, just use their, let their fingers do the walking? I mean, I, I, I guess I'm fascinated about that, but they. Because oh, we, should, we should back up and say that, that Jeff was raised by his single mother, that, that Tim is his father, but that um, he was not in the picture. Not in the so, picture. Yeah, and, so, sort of wrestling with the figure of the absent father. Right. Stuff for most of his very short life. I mean, indeed, he, I mean, he kind of didn't even, re- he referred to him as Tim, you know, like, right. you know, in, in yeah. things. I mean, uh, I think after his, you know, uh, stepfather and his mother um, separated, that's when uh, Jeff Buckley's mother started playing Tim Buckley music for him to say, hey, ch- you know, check out this song. This is your, your biological father. And that's when he changed his last name to Buckley because mm. before he was like, Spotty Morehouse or, or, or something like that. Yeah, like, I, think, I think that's right, yeah. Um, so he, at this concert, by all accounts, and I just listened to a clip of this because it was re- at least record, you know, audio recorded, he just took everybody's you know, breath away because yeah. his voice, his high falsetto voice was just like his father's. And so that's how, and from then on, his life was changed. I mean, he was signed to, you know, like Sony Records, Sony Columbia, I think. Yeah. There was a bidding wars, like a million dollar deal for three records, which, you know, I'm sure Steve Albini will write in and say that wasn't that big of a deal. He probably only, made, <laughs> he probably only cleared six dollars. But, but it seems like a big deal for me, to me, at least. <laughs> right. This is just one guy talking. Um And uh, then he had to get a band together. Right. And then, you know, he got a drummer and a bassist. And. An incredible band together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, we should note that uh, Steve Albini wrote that piece about what musicians make in the Baffler, the Journal out of the mm-hmm. University of Chicago. So anyway, much reprinted. It's online somewhere. Track that down, kids. We'll link it at our website. Okay. Or or, or don't just look. Or not. Or just or just <laughs> Google we'll it. Give it to you, yes. You lazy bones. So so he got this uh, band together, and uh, what's happening at the same time is that he's moved to New York. And he from Los Angeles, yeah. from Los Angeles. Well, greater Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And he has a isn't it all greater Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> he, and he has this uh, new b- girlfriend, Rebecca Moore, whose father was in the Fluxus movement. He's taking part in like you know uh, you know alternative art events. So he his you know I could just picture Jeff Buckley's brilliant brain getting more brilliant like as we move along. <laughs> all the while he's doing gigs at Chennai where he's you know doing covers of. Go ahead and f- fill in the blank there. Um, uh, the Smiths. The Smiths. Yeah. <laughs> what song did he do? The boy uh, with a thorn in his side. Yeah. But lots of uh, yeah, but a lot as you've already mentioned, lots of French um, chanteuse 
songs. It's, it's at, the, at this point, it's hard not to psychologize him. I think there, there. I don't know if right. he actually said it at some point, but the, but he said he was drawn to songs about you know women who had been done wrong by men, <laughs> <laughs> which his mom certainly seemed to have uh, some experience with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And out of that, you know, comes the 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 gig where. I guess it was a multi-step process. It wasn't like a limo was waiting outside St. Anne's after the gig, like, kid, we're going to make you a star. I think after that, Hal Wilner and maybe some Columbia people showed up to Chennai and were like, this guy's, is this guy real? Like, where is this guy coming from? Because he just had total command of this audience. This club, you know, it was like a thousand square, you know, smaller than my, you know, about as big as my first apartment in Brooklyn, you know. Right. So this batch of songs that they recorded with like Andy Wallace, who I remember from all kinds of liner notes of albums, right? All kinds of, you know, mainstream rock type stuff. Like mm. did the, like the cult, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you, know well, you can help me out with other ones maybe if you want, but, but, you know, just like a mainstream rock guy. So like what interested me, like as far as grace goes, is that here's a, a major label record that has, it just sounds like it's from, from the heavens. Mm. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, I just thought this is the this is the earnest, non-ironic falsetto male singer I have been waiting for, right, for a long time. Who also, at least for me, satisfies my, and I cannot suppress this, <laughs> my like Berkeley College of Music wannabe fandom. Of musicians who are so good at their musician, at their, <laughs> or the, at their, the, the virtuoso, type. yeah, the virtuoso. Yeah. I, you know, so here I'm listening to him play guitar chords I can't even begin to understand, and <laughs> listening to drum fills that I'm like, I think I only heard that at like a G3 concert, you know, <laughs> with Steve, you know, like a Steve Vai, and you know, exactly people who are unafraid to be. You know, proficient, but also unafraid to let the complete breadth of their instrument, be it vocal, guitars, bass, you know, drums, it, it serve be the a record. <laughs> yeah, serve the song structure, which was not prog rocky or avant jazz mm -hmm. by any means whatsoever. I'm, it, it suddenly reminds me, and uh, that remember when Henry Rollins got this this band together uh, for Liar. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a liar. We agree he's not good, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind part of that song, but what was he? He got some of these in it, it, like he got Melvin Gibbs on bass, who was one of the best, you know, avant uh, jazz uh, bass players to play an album. And it it just strikes me that that when those guys who are that level of avant jazzness get recruited to be on albums, they 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 dumb it down so so far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, so as not to reveal that they're actually, you know, right. good or something like. It makes me well, think of this uh, is a genre now, and I'm playing in this genre, <laughs> as opposed to this band that you're talking about, where like, you know, there's this great. I don't know too much of song structures. I have to. I have to. Yeah. I have to say, I don't know too much about the drummer and the bassist. Can you tell me a little bit about I, that? I can't. I mean, because really they do. Can't. They do seem to be from the muso circles. Like you can just there's a certain kind of drum fill. You can hear like that's like a high tom, like that that's not quite Terry Bozio, but yeah, but getting there, yeah. <laughs> that, but, but but Stuart Copeland's a good comparison. Maybe. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's sort of like oh yeah. So he's in a pocket of a certain pop structure, but nonetheless, all these really interesting things are happening uh, in the background. We should... Matt Johnson is the drummer, right? Who only played from like ninety four to ninety. Well, 
Jeff Buckley was only around for so many years, but right. he eventually did leave the band. Um, but Matt Johnson, I did take notice of his drumming, you know, back then and, and listening to it again now. It, it's, it occurs to me that you, you listen to Grace like once a year or something. Like you, that's in your regular playlist. It's a regular now. rotation, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful album. I think that you said it's hard to not to psychoanalyze him, or what did you say? <laughs> it's hard. Uh, right, right, right. Well, well, I mean, when he gives quotes about being a chanteuse and thinking about why he was drawn to some of those songs, although there are not that many of those that uh, are on this particular album. Um, yeah, and I was I was uh, I was so uh, in love with this uh, first album and 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 really um, excited about the the next album that he was recording uh, when he when he drowned in uh, in the middle of recording and it was by all accounts and including the 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 coroner not drug related not alcohol related he just went for a swim and yeah. In his clothes or something at night, and uh, didn't yeah didn't drowned. Yes. Anyway, yeah. I, yeah, I was I was I was absolutely devastated, and uh, and, and and even more so when they finally released uh, uh, sketches for my sweetheart, which was what we sweetheart was, the drunk the drunk yeah, yeah which he was working on, which got released as a double CD. It it seemed like um, he just wouldn't let go of the songs. He was you know he, he had a lot of it recorded and it sounds great already so the question of why he wouldn't have let it go is is is, is, is beyond me but besides that uh back back to grace for a second i wonder maybe we should actually start with just uh a little bit of uh, tim buckley let's do it uh just you can just so our audience can hear what tim sounded like what song do you want to play i actually want to play song to the siren Long afloat on shipless oceans I did all my best to smile Till your singing eyes and fingers Drew me loving to your isle And you sang Sail to me, sail to me, let me enfold you. Here I am, here I am, waiting to hold you. So that was Tim Buckley, "Song to the Siren." Yeah, beautiful song. Very and much in the you know late sixties uh, territory that we've been talking about, right, for the last few episodes. And it also occurs to me, or it has occurred to me, that Tim uh, Jeff Buckley had a, a built-in audience, people who were, who wanted, who were fans of Tim Buckley, who who, who wanted to hear mm. him. And indeed, there was you know, like people like Patti Smith and. You know, you you name it, like Chrissy Hind. These are the people who were in a, a BBC documentary talking about you know Jeff Buckley. Who were like, well, we love Tim Buckley as well. 
so Jeff Buckley, you know, I, we took notice of, of him. Right. The documentary has to be mentioned. Uses <laughs> Comic Sans for its titles. And I'm like, why did they make that choice? <laughs> Comic Sans is a font. That's whimsical. So there's this way in which uh, he's wrestling with his, his dad's sound, uh, just so you can get some sense of what Tim sounded like at that time. And uh, but also obviously influenced by so many other things that you've already mentioned, and being in New York in the mid '90s and all these other kinds of things. And, and I and I'm avoiding the, at, saying this uh, at the at the rise of you know whatever alternative meant uh, during that moment. Also, like the the I've since gotten hip to it, but even back then in the '90s, I I steered clear of it or or just didn't I just didn't listen to it that much. But Kowali singing, you know, by uh, Nusrat Fateh. Ali, Ali Khan, Ali Khan, yeah. Who was what uh, soundtrack for the like, that Death Row movie? He was all over that with um, a Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking. He was like, you know, I mean, it's great, great stuff. And he, I didn't know that Jeff Buckley was like a like devoted that, fan. Like, yeah, that into it. Yeah. He did an interview in Interview Magazine, nineteen ninety six, with Nusrat, as if I know him yeah. personally. <laughs> That's right, Nus Khan. We'll call him <laughs> Khan. <Yeah. laughs> the wrath of Nusrat Khan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, extreme digression for a second. This song covered in the early '90s by this Mortal Coil. Oh, and and we'll start, we'll be able. You know, we'll be able to circle back to Jeff Buckley with you know that version. Do you want to play it here? Is that yeah? You know, we'll play, we'll play just a little bit of it here. And you know, I want to bring it up. Were you into this Mortal Coil back in? The yeah, day? I was. What? Look, there was no, there was. Um, this is. Full. I was a. De- I'm a depressive person. <laughs> Therefore, I was into this more. No, no, they weren't that depressive. <laughs> 4AD label uh, owner, Ivo Watts Russell, <laughs> oh. decided to put this uh, band together, but loosely associated band. So it was a couple of covers, but mostly, I'm sorry, a couple of originals, but mostly just covers that at the time I had never heard of mm-hmm. before yeah. at all. And it was the most beautifully produced thing I'd ever heard in my life. I'm walking around campus with my little CD. Did they call them Walkman still? They were like CD mans or whatever. Disc mans. Disc mans, that's it. Any rate. And Wait, were you like, like holding it like the way I would hold the chalice as an altar boy? That's right. So it, it skip. couldn't skip. Yes, we've <laughs> talked skip. about this before, but it cannot be stressed enough. That's right. Even with the anti-skipping technology, <laughs> yeah. it was still dubious. I remember it was like three times sampling. Wait a minute. That is amazing. But this was a headphones album, and it was like unlike anything that I'd ever heard before. Uh, any rate. Uh, but this song is on there, and and who did Ivo Watts Russell bring in since he was the 4AD label uh, owner? But Elizabeth Fraser and Robin Guthrie from uh, Cocteau Twins. The Cocteau Twins, baby. Somebody's got to pick a Cocteau Twins album. <sighs> we got to get in here somehow. Well, this is this is one way of doing it, right? So and, you know, so here <laughs> quickly is "Song to the Siren" covered by This Mortal Coil. On the floating shipless oceans, I did all my best to smile to your singing eyes and fingers drew me. Let me unfold you 
And the way it circles back to Jeff Buckley, and this is something I did not know back then and only have known in recent years, is that Elizabeth Fraser, lead singer of Cocteau Twins, was both a huge fan of Tim Buckley, but from the second he met or listened to Jeff Buckley was friends, you know, like was, you know, Mm. really, really a big fan as, as was Jeff Buckley of Cocteau Twins. Right. Which makes me very happy because I'm, I just think Cocteau Twins kind of range too. Yeah. I just think Cocteau Twins does not get enough love as far as, um, you know, either influence, maybe because she sings in a freaking made up language. It still shocks me that we share this, but yes. Yeah. But it makes sense when you listen to, can we play a Jeff Buckley song? I guess we can finally now. I think the stage we have oversold this shit, haven't we? <laughs> People who have not heard Jeff Buckley will now be under impressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is this is "Lick My Love Pump" by Jeff Buckley. <laughs> it's "Swallow This Live" <laughs> by Jeff. That's that's your go-to crude. <laughs> have I said that one before? You have. Oh, and but no, but I think it bears repeating because <laughs> it's. Just... I, I think my. Uh... <laughs> this is a great setup for Tim Buckley, by the way. But, but you know, but my niece came home with that album when she was you know, like eleven or something. And, Joe Pin, the opening track of yeah. Jeff Buckley's Grace. Thoughts? Or are you just like totally taken aback? While we were playing it, you bragged to me that you could play it on guitar. <laughs> like you were like, like the. Uh, and you might take me up on this now. Right. Yeah, no, the guitar no, I wouldn't challenge play, you. Yeah, yeah. Great song. Great song. 
it, well, I'm a sucker for these, you know, um, volume pedal to guitar effects that come in. And I was going to talk about pedals, yeah, and yeah. stuff. You know, it's it's, <laughs> you know, at this time, at you have to historicize this album as well too. I mean, at, at this time, there's just like a lot of fuzz. There's a lot of fuzz going on in the alternative rock world, the rock world, right? You yeah. Know, take your take your pick, right. and. Um, here he is, like playing through, like as if he was playing through a jazz chorus, you know, with the with a the delay very, pedal, very clean guitar sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned Pat Metheny earlier. This, yeah, Pat Metheny, Al yeah. Al like, he he's name dropped these guitar p- players, which at the time I think, well, like even now <laughs> in a way, is like unfashionable. <laughs> it's it's a little bit unfashionable. Yeah, and I think it. I think you know for 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 a certain type of music fan, that you know the fact that he's taking. These, if you will, like unfashionable or, or off kilter influences and synthesizing them into, you know, hit, the way he sounds is really adds to the appeal for sure. It's hard for me to think about Jeff Buckley and not think about tragic song. I mean, if he sang like musical comedy, it would probably not be as as sad that he died the way he did the, as early as he did. But the fact that he wrote this music. And that you would listen to it during times when you wanted to <laughs> willingly, you know, face your face your darkness is yeah. is something uh, that definitely adds to the myth, you know, the sort of James Dean myth of Jeff Buckley, which you know I, I sort of embrace to tell you the truth because he did just seem to come out of outer space. The uh, single that was released off this um, last goodbye. Which actually got some play on MTV and uh, a bit on the radio. It got play. Uh, there was a video for Last Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Because you know what? You know where this charted on, in the United States? The album, the highest it charted. Take a guess. Oh, it, it's low. It's very low. One forty nine. One forty nine. I mean, that just breaks my heart. Yeah. To think that that's 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 why it peaked in forty four in the UK. So I'm ready to rescind my citizenship on that basis alone. <laughs> I was already uh, a quick story. I was already into the album, and my uh, my roommate's sister was uh, dating the guy who worked at the the record store uh, in um, Bloomington, Illinois. And so I went in to comb through the racks as you do, and I go in to say hi to him, see how he's doing and stuff. And like, it doesn't seem like there's anyone there, and this album is just. Full, full blasting and I'm like going through the racks and wondering well maybe he's going to the bathroom or something and that's when I hear from behind like down beneath the cashier I just hear sobbing back there oh really <laughs> yeah he's just like in the fetal position crying oh. his crying his way through work I know <laughs> I just wanted to I don't know how I'm laughing now I guess because of my discomfort no, I was I like mean, Dude, but this is, you know, but like if, you know, when you listen to Mojo Pin, like we just played, or you listen to a song like This Is Our Last Goodbye or something, and it's, you know. Did you ever make depression mixes? Like, did you ever make, like, I'm going to now make a mix on a cassette? I think all of my mixes were. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just knocked over the microphone. But, you know, this, one of these, you know, Last Goodbye or or, uh, Mojo Pin would certainly make its way but for me it's it's candy apple gray who do that, that one I'll just i just lose it i couldn't afford therapy back you can then. imagine the, yeah <laughs> so after just, the after the girl left you you would be the guy at the record store <laughs> i mean who's you know. playing hardly getting over it right now like, do we need to call Why an ambulance 
Oh wow! And did, you knew that album by then, right? Yeah. So yeah. Like, so you knew that there needed to be <laughs> but some kind of intervention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone is crying somewhere. I know it. <laughs> and but it somehow lent power to like it became this even more magical artifact of like you know, <laughs> just drenched in emotion somehow. What uh, switching topic slightly from <laughs> depression and suicide yeah. is? What is your take on the, like the bonus disc of the Legacy Edition? And, and uh, uh, you know, there's I don't know. I really like Lost Highway. Um, you know, the sort of Hank Williams Jr. popularized by Hank Williams, uh, not Hank Williams Jr. That would be great. <laughs> All my route of friends. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, I, I, I think it's my only. Yeah, they, yeah, I, I, I'm not in love with it. Uh, it, it's okay. Uh, I was more interested to hear an even better version, I guess, of the you know even better remastered than it already sounded in ninety, you know, ninety four. Well, I think, but, I think that, but it didn't sound that much better. And, um, but I do like the, you know, by the way, because Jeff Buckley could uh, rock so hard that he could take the pain off the walls, and his um, other version, his alternate version of Eternal Life which is on this album is one of those just like, Oh my God. Yeah. He was clearly listening to thrash and stuff. And, and when I saw him live, he would uh, cover MC five and stuff like that. Kick out so the jams. Kick yeah. out the jams. And- but he wasn't like somebody, so he was somebody who had to be not tutored, but he had to get hip to the punk stuff. Like he was very much like a classic rocker, you know, through and through al- along with all these other different, you know, Nina Simone and, yeah. and uh, Nusrat Khan and all that stuff. So I find that interesting. He took to it right away, and and started just covering it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, boy. And I'll confess, back in the day when he's like, and here's one from MC5. I'm like, oh shit. Even back then. Back then, absolutely oh, yes. God, what a jaded person you are. <laughs> not that no, not that he was gonna rock, but that he was gonna play some band from the late, you know, from the late '60s, early '70s, you know, and like. Uh, I can't. I can't recommend the uh, the BBC. It's on YouTube. Uh, documentary on Jeff Buckley enough because there's a footage of him. I think he's reacting to an audience member. Maybe the, the audience member said, uh, "It's as if I'm back in the '60s, man," or something. Mm. Maybe one of those Tim uh, Tim Buckley fans who's see Jeff Buckley. Anyway, the the footage itself begins him going, "The '60s sucked. The '70s don't even need to say it sucked." The 80s sucked, except for the Smiths. Maybe the Smiths, he <laughs> granted, says. Granted, And he's yeah. like, and then he goes, you know, sort, sort of uh, breaking character again. It's, it's about now, now, now. Well, but the, and I, he was so intense, you know, like, oh, my God, it's like, you can't, like, just tell somebody to be that intense, you know, to, like, curry audience favor, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that's what I was going to say. That That was my... That was my feeling, right? Like it's all about now, and, and listening to Jeff right, yeah. play these songs, and then uh, then he's gonna throw in an MC5 too. I think that's like, why. I think yeah. that's why I brought it up because it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's so he's just he's at once saying the hell with all that, you know. And there's an, there's another great footage in the in the documentary. I'm sure it's in other documentaries where he says, you know, can I just say I love my father? You know, like I, mm. you know, I didn't hate him or whatever. It, that seems to be the narrative that's being built around me that. You know, I'm like this abandoned son, you know, wailing for his father. He, he never, he met him like once, you know, spent a week with him once when he was nine. That's it, you know. And I just think that that's, that, that is a nice corrective to the, the Buckley myth. As much as I want to buy into certain parts of it because it 
Right. It is great. Now, I have this top 100 from 1997, which I sort of made a mistake, or I, I think I printed out 97 instead of 94, just looking for, I guess... Top 100 songs? Influence. Uh, yeah. Top 100 Billboard songs. The Billboard songs, yeah. I couldn't help but think to myself that this album, Grace, although only reached 150 on the Billboard charts, has this influence on popular music in a certain way. And certainly there's other factors. The Nirvanas, the Pearl Jams. But if you take a look at like the Ver- the Verve Pipe Freshman song, have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's basically a Jeff Buckley song. <laughs> less, less masterfully done. I mean, there's other examples as well, but that was, you know, 21 on the, uh, on the, uh, on, on the charts. When I was young, I knew everything. She, a punk who rarely ever took advice. Now I'm guilt-stricken, sobbing with my head on the floor Stopping baby's breath and a shoe full of rice, no Can't be held responsible She was touching her face I won't be held responsible She fell in love in the first place for the life of me, I cannot remember What made us think that we were wise and we never compromised For the life of me, I cannot believe we'd ever die For these sins, we were merely freshmen Yeah, well actually, I, so. I, I would make the claim that uh, this and this other band called Radiohead um, it really set the template for something like Coldplay, the the rise of Coldplay. Like, you know, if way back when we talk about the Smiths, about like what happened when the Smiths disappear and what the vacuum has to be filled, mm-hmm. um, songs like Last Goodbye and stuff like that cut a template for, you know, emotive singing over very clean production. But I, I, I want to make a point here. Yes. And, and I'm going to, this is a gauntlet. <laughs> I am not the biggest Radiohead fan. I love Jeff Buckley. I know, I know. But you know what? I loved the uh the the Yellow by Coldplay. I think that album that song is awesome. The stars are all yellow. Yeah. And uh was I, it a I, kick, I, of, I, a I kick to the head or whatever that that, sure. al- that album's a, a masterpiece. Uh parachutes. No, no, no. I think that, that's true. Right, that's where Yellow is. Yeah. What's the next one? It's like a long ass title. A, ki- a rush of blood to the head. Right. That album's great. And uh I'm one of those people that it trickled down to, and I love it. <laughs> you love being trickled down upon. I love that trickled <laughs> that trickled down, and I played that thing solid, knowing full well that I could not handle and probably would not like because I am a pro. <laughs> uh, the 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 Radioheads, you know, version of that. Yeah. I like the well. Well, let's go, we'll, we'll get there. I think that I think that Radioheads. The Benz is on here. I'm I'm positive Enemy probably got around to putting it on there. Uh, and I would say that that album, which was huge, which Radiohead walked away from, is what makes places, bands like Coldplay and Travis. But we, anyway, you, we, we've played so much music here. You're and being we, too we, nice. You're being too nice to me. I want you to be like, I want you to say, 
what a complete Philistine you are that you like Coldplay more than Radiohead. And I just want to say, we can just sample this and put a reverb on it. I like Coldplay more than Radiohead. <laughs> All right. I love it. And, but what? I don't like either that much anymore. <laughs> Dan, you ignorant <laughs> slut. So, so you know, so these these echoes of, of Jeff Buckley in the years that, that followed. and It's great just to hear it again. Did you? Did, we did want you, to play as the outro. I mean, what's you know what? Track uh, or I, I mean, obviously he did that uh, very quasi-famous cover of Leonard Cohen's oh. "Hallelujah" and is uh, probably it feels it feels like it's famous. It's one, a famous the one version. who brought it back, even though again Rufus Wainwright was the one who played it on the Shrek soundtrack years and then, later, though Holmes. And then and then it and then Cohen's version comes back and starts making. Have you heard the original Cohen's version though? It's not that great. Yeah. This one's better. <laughs> okay, yeah, even but even later, Buckley's like, I didn't get the vocal right. Like he still wanted to mess with it. But um, I think there's like a synth on the original Hallelujah. I mean, Jeff Buckley's <laughs> like, I'm gonna make that. Don't you? Am I, am I correct? I mean, is it isn't it like sort of an '80s like Leonard Cohen song or something? Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played. And it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall The major lift, the baffled king composing The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing
But for Buckley, let's play something that rocks as well. How about that that Eternal Life song that I talked about earlier mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the on the way out? All right, we can do that to to remind people that the man knew his way around the guitar. rocking i hear a little stevie ray vaughn the beginning of that track but he didn't <laughs> but i you can disagree that's pretty it's it's cool that he could rock yeah yeah I and, and i and actually i mean we're i'm tasked uh wonderfully with talking about pj harvey's stories from the city and stories from the sea uh that she was nonetheless a contemporary of buckley's uh, yeah, and and I think it sounds like we both got a hold of Dry, PJ Harvey's debut. I had Dry in those four track demos. Nineteen ninety five. It was uh, I was so deep into it. My uh, recently mentioned roommate <laughs> <laughs> had the uh, she again. There was, there was this weird flip where it seemed like uh, she had recorded acoustic versions of all those songs ahead of time, and then there was the then there was the full band uh, release. Mm-hmm. And it did seem like an opposite. Again, this is during the time of uh, so many MTV unplugs that I thought, <laughs> oh, this is like, you know, she, I think I just said this last episode, but, it, you know, this is, here's the uh, full band thing. And then later she stripped it down and did the, right. but, no, but it turned out these were the demos on the, on the one side of the cassette that we had. Uh, and then the, on the other side, these unbelievably great songs that were full of feminist rants that I was really in love with at the time and uh, the most powerful woman I'd ever heard. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, I would say probably uh, the best guitar player that, that I'd heard since uh, Annie Clark of St. Vincent now, right? I mean, it's like she is the, the only figure uh, before you go, you know, I don't know back to heart or something i'm sure there's someone out there who, who is now <laughs> thinking of who, who else is in there the but. answer is orianthe she's like the <laughs> shredder person who plays in richie sambora's band 
Sorry, anyway, we'll cut, we can cut that out. <laughs> no, no, I demand that you that you leave that. <laughs> you have to live. You have to live with that one. She was playing in Michael Jackson's band. Are we talking about like chick guitar players? Oh man. Uh, okay, in, in my in, in my small little indie world, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, your small little limited world. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, female, female guitarists range from <laughs> Kim Deals Kelly, Kelly Deals. Kim Deal's sister, Kelly Deal, yeah, and the Breeders, yeah. right, to... Uh, Who just picked up the instrument or something, like, for to, that. Yes, yeah, that's right, to P.J. Harvey. Nonetheless, uh, those uh, first couple of albums uh, and seeing her live were a tremendous experience. And um, what is her setup? Like, what kind of guitar does she play? Like, I, I can I can totally tell it's, like, Fender or whatever. Yeah, I think the, she's with, changed uh, it a couple times. With Jeff Buckley, but, but not with P.J. Harvey. Yeah, he played a Telecaster, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've seen her play with the different different guitars. Yeah. So I'm not sure about the about the setup. And so she did those first two albums and uh, as a trio. And speaking again uh, about power I, I would, trios. Well, I would yeah. like I would like to play here. You know, uh, Ostella off of Dry, just to give you a sense of where she was in '95, because there too she had the most amazing drummer and bass player. So there you can hear the power of early uh, PJ Harvey and after those first two albums that they broke the, up the, the friction after that that yeah. US tour and uh, she went to on to do these sort of um, uh, what would you call them sort of uh, uh, electronically influenced sort of um, uh, but away from rock, but away from rock and roll directly radiohead like <sighs> oh Id est. It's gonna be a long. It's gonna be a long run. <laughs> Id est dodgy. <laughs> to bring you, so to bring you to my love, which was like a huge album, and she had some uh, some ch- chartish, sing, you know, yeah. some singles that went a, a little bit further than some of the stuff from from the rock rockier albums. Uh, it, but but I I completely re- I rejected her outright <laughs> at that point. Like I loved that power trio so yeah. much. Uh, yeah. That I couldn't believe that she had ditched them and gone this completely different direction. Well, I, I mean, as as usual, I just followed the lead of a lot of my friends who had good, better taste than I. So I too bought those two albums, the demos and the and the first album, and rid of me, right? Rid of me, and then rid of the me, four yeah. track. That's right. And yeah. and then I th- I think uh, the consensus, at least among my friends, 
and it was eh, you know they're they're worth listening to but maybe not essential right uh-huh and then this i think this was sort of in a, her mainstream friendly comeback album do we even say that it was a, in alternative rock circles friendly. I mean, this was cleaner or something, or more conventional guitar rock? Back back to guitars in some way. Yeah. I think the reason that it appears on this list is not only because it's great. Yeah, and it is. <laughs> it's super. Uh, but it is also uh, an album proper insofar as she had, this, this Brit had come and lived in New York right, for a right. while. And so this is a song cycle uh, uh, about her experiences for the most part. Right. About living in New York. Yeah. Uh, right. And so that's the sort of glue that holds it together and sort of makes it feel a lot more cohesive mm-hmm. than some of the earlier stuff did. Um, and again, that's one of the reasons I think that they picked it. And it was a bit, uh, it was critically recognized, but she won the Mercury Prize, mm-hmm. which, as you know, is the. Uh, named after who? Oh, Freddie Mercury. I think it's the, the sun the sun gone, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, the the only person to win it twice. Twice, we're, yeah. We're going to talk about the other album. That one's uh, that one's way up there, like in the 30s, maybe maybe even yeah, the 20s. Let England shake. But anyway, ten, ten years later, she will she will win it again. But she was uh, just by anecdote, uh, she was performing the the Mercury Prize ceremony. This is, uh, by the way, the, this is the Grammys for for the the Brits, right? Because the Mercury Prize is part of the Brits. Yes, is it not exactly? Okay. At any rate. Uh, but that but that ceremony was held on September 11th, 2001. Right, and I think that's you know like uh, Ryan Adams' New York song. I can't. My gosh, you can't leave me New York or something. <laughs> there was all these songs that became like you know fundamentally you know uh, tied to 9/11, and I think this is one of those albums to a certain degree because it was a you know New York inspired album. So yeah, and, yeah. and by the way, she was on tour. And playing Washington D.C. Yes, that day, and they didn't cancel the gig. Apparently, right. At any rate, so yeah, the Mercury Prize winning uh, album, and uh, again, that was so, the night that she won the thing. Swallowed up by history, even she says it. It's like, yeah, we won, but like everything that surrounded that just seemed to overshadow everything. That seemed to reflect on my career or something. Well, guide me a little bit. You know, we just glossed over ten years of PJ Harvey dumb, right? I mean, yeah. Um, I wonder what drove her to return to the that sort of arrangement, that sort of setup, that guitar, bass, drums setup. Being in New York, or or just yeah, being in New uh, York. You know, what's interesting is that like uh, like I said, I was furious that she had dropped this amazing trio that that she yeah. had, and I think, oh well, there went one of the great drummers. He plays drums on this album, so oh, he does. He does. I was like, oh, interesting. So it's not like she got rid of the drummer; she just brought him back and had to ask him to play differently. <laughs> you know, like okay. well, not just incidentally, take I get back a little bit. Not incidentally, I looked up uh, Jeff Buckley's drummer, Matt Johnson, yeah. and he's like playing. He's still playing out and stuff like that. I, I'm always concerned about these like abandoned side <laughs> the people. Abandoned, abandoned he's playing drummers. with Duncan Sheik. He's fine, you know. But but every once in a while, you're like. You know? I mean, sure, he's playing with brushes, but, but, but it's, it's just as good. Best known for playing with Kevin Cronin's solo album, you know, and they're like, oh, no. Right, is that right? Right, well, that's Husker Du, but then there's the, I don't even, oh, it only proves my guy, point that you guys. don't know the Sugar's bases. <laughs> We're not going to post-production that, but he's, you know, he's, yeah, I mean, they're doing, they're, I'm sure they're doing fine, but it's like, 
all these abandoned people. I think there's something about the power trio dynamic where the obviously the the guitarist, often it's the guitarist singer, uh, is the main driving force. But you've got these people who are part of the sound, so they feel like they're in a band, but they're not in a band. <laughs> And there's something about maybe right. being three rather than four, uh, <laughs> or that where they feel like you know they have to do like a lot of work to be to fill out that sound. So they maybe they feel like they're part of the band. They want to get songwriting credits and and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And then uh, the lead singer guitarist then goes, "No, <laughs> we're done here. We're done here. We're done here." Because it was a band yeah. called PJ Harvey. That was how. It was, that was exactly you know, right. Yes. Yeah. Her name is Paula Jean Harvey, and then she decided on some other names, and then decided to just call the band PJ Harvey. It's like Alice and Cooper. And yet, then she still the went band by, was Alice Cooper. But then she still went by PJ Harvey <laughs> yeah. later, right? So that kind of theory kind of went out the window later. But the single uh, released off here and uh, worth our time, I think, to open up with his good fortune. Let's do it about New York City. Chords and the truth. Yeah. Yeah, but like a you know, like a C6 and F minor 7 or something, right? It's not like just uh, barred chords being moved around. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it plays, it plays really nicely in the verse. But uh, great, what a great... that rising chord progression. In the, yes. For record nerds like us, that is just mana. <laughs> just... <laughs> and yeah, so post 9-11... <laughs> the prize on 9-11, a song about New... You know, an album of a song about New York City. I mean... It, Everything is working in this thing, this album's favor to to be here. Uh, I liked it regardless of all those other reasons about why it might be on this list. This is me saying, here's why this album's well, on the it's, list. It's on the NME list, so it's not yeah. a given <laughs> because you because this is sort of an American album by an English artist, right? Exactly. But, uh, it, what, you know what is interesting is the way how much she sounds like Chrissy Hind here, <laughs> and uh, and Patty Smith, and Patty Smith. But you know what's odd is that I never thought that until this album. So it, it, even the um, even her vocal delivery, because like even dry and rid of me, it's not like I ever thought, wow, this is a lot like Chrissy Hind. Mm-hmm. But like get her, but get her closer to songs like that chord progression or something. You know, you could hear the Pretenders maybe doing a song like that or something along those lines. It, so it, that so they oh wait, hey a second, well, you know, suddenly two, she sounds could, like Chrissy Hind. It has those two chords sliding back and forth, like tired of waiting for you, the Kinks tune, you know. 
it kind of goes back and sways. Mm-hmm. differently on this album rather than the previous albums? Is that, is that something <laughs> yes. that you think is happening? As, listen, as listeners will note from the song we played from Dry, <laughs> right. you maybe didn't even notice the drums It was here. like, play better. <laughs> Just less is what I'm saying to you. <laughs> it's a great collection of songs. I, I have to keep it real and say I don't really care for the whore, the whore's hustle and the hustler's whore. Uh, it's, a, it's just the lyrics kind of... Don't, yeah, go, yeah. don't work. I thought you were going to go right for the throat and go for the. Tom, no, I don't care for that one either. For the Tom York, <laughs> the Tom York duet, that which, by the way, might also account for the reason why it's on the enemy list. Tom York is on three of these songs, uh, <laughs> and uh, one of them I think is a really great duet uh, that they do together. Uh, I don't necessarily need to, need to play that one. <laughs> no, 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 you don't. Uh, and and but but a good half of these songs are. I don't want to call them ballads, but but but, but slower, uh, moodier, melodic pieces. But also back to basics is part of the narrative here too, right? The, the, back to the original instrumentation, yeah. And in a cleaner, more, um, again, like mainstreamy way. Like the the only dissenting voices, there were some dissenting voices critically on this album, and I think it was because it sounded cleaner. It wasn't muddy, you know. It wasn't, hmm. you know. There was, there this was is not much. the da- this is not the dangerous PJ Harvey, right? Right, yeah. and that's like a pitchfork and you know that sort of set um, at that time. So yeah, yeah. It's kind of in a, the one reviewer did not yeah, care yeah. for it that much, but it's like yeah. where where you, I always and that's another. I mean, thing. she's got all of her clothes on on the front of the album, <laughs> right, you know, right. she, sunglasses. She's in the city. That's and, another thing. Don't you do you ever like look up? You're like, who is this douchebag who is saying this album sucks at that time? Like, do you ever <laughs> Google those people? I do. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are from Canada. A lot of them. <laughs> they are. Let's start a net, yeah, war. Yeah, yeah no, like a, I think a lot of them are just like grumpy and cold in the winter. And they're like, ah, this album isn't as good. I'm going to make my name by saying this <laughs> album that everybody says is great. Sucks. <laughs> to defend Pitchfork, <laughs> it, it did wind up as one of the best albums of the of the decade. Right, and that's yeah. part of the, I think that's also part of the narrative too. Yeah. It's like they don't like it at first and they revise their opinions. Well, you got the one guy, but then they over- at, at any of these magazines, like even the uh, the enemy list that we're doing, right? So it's like the bullpen gets together and they all put in their yeah. picks or whatever, you know? It's definitely a group, a group effort. Uh, I would like to uh, play 
uh, I guess as, a, as an outro, uh, uh, like straight up duet. I, actually, I did not know until reading about this album for today mm-hmm. that that song that I'm about to play you, uh, Beautiful Feeling, which I say is this slow brooding thing with these wonderful vocals that go on in the background. I didn't know that was Tom singing the background vocals. Oh, really? Yeah, until If I had yeah, known that, I probably week. would say I disliked the song. <laughs> That's right. You still have time. I still have time. So we'll see what you think after we get after we get back. You really want me to? I've listened to this <laughs> yeah. album. I give it a seven. Beautiful feeling. Anyway, though. beautiful feeling. We're not Johnny Fever. We're gonna. Cut it's more than a feeling. <laughs> it's a, a beautiful feeling. Time to kicker pick. The kicker pick. Should we explain it? We we don't even explain it. All these other episodes. <laughs> yeah. So my kicker pick year was ninety-seven. 19- oh, that's why I looked at the ninety-seven. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, or why ninety-seven gl- stuck in my head? Rather. What a glorious year for music. But I, for the life of me, and you already did Corner Shop a few episodes ago. Yeah, so, so I have two ninety-sevens. And for once, I looked ahead on the list to be like, because my in the caricature of my. My, uh, my, the myth of my own uh, self, uh, what do you call it? Perse- my persecution complex. They told me that I'm only going to pick like crap from the 90s. But this is indeed like, like the last 97 for sure. And probably like the last, you know, yeah. the, you know, nine, you know, 90s, 90s one. So I wanted to actually they give a 95. After yeah. my- <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to. My criteria for this kicker pick yeah. was we need something representative from the 90s that is rock that is rock. Okay, we've been right? rock, we we've done some rocking here today. Yeah, we but yes. I'm talking I'm not talking about 
fey rock or <laughs> play a little more pronounced this time around drummer good, good for, for a, good for a girl rock i'm talking about fucking stadiums <laughs> i'm talking about fucking I'm, I'm talking about fucking lighters okay okay lighters right? are involved lighters are involved or cell, right? or cell phones so i'm gonna fire up i'm gonna fire up this song and i'm gonna now you have my interest sir it is <laughs> i i did go ahead of course as always look ahead at 97s and think oh yeah my god god's bleed you black emperor came out that year there's no way Nestor's picking that one. <laughs> You're, I oh, mean, yeah, there's that. No, he's not going with that one. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. He's, I, I, I know he loves Stereo Lab, but he's already rejected that option. No, well, I had to. I, I wanted to pick the right Stereo Lab, and I think like with with uh, Corner Shop. Oh, oh I, I think Dots and Loops is the right Stereo you, we, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Let the record show you showed up to my door to, for a recording session not long ago with a Dots and Loops fucking t-shirt. You're Did a grown-ass man wearing a Stereolab shirt. I know, I know. Uh, Wasn't that a... I, I think... Yeah, it might have been a Dots and Loops. <laughs> like, if, if not my Cobra phases. <laughs> I think I might, yeah. All right, so I was trying to I was trying to do, uh, subliminally tell you what, what to pick for ninety seven, but <laughs> no. But now I'm I'm ready to be kicked. I, I think you I, I think you know what I'm picking, but uh, I'm just no. But it came out in ninety seven. This came out in ninety seven, and and it, oh, you know what? I think I might know. All right, do you want do me you, to just do, go right in? Do, do you want me to do it? No, you don't want me to say it though. Go ahead, pick it. It's the color and the shape. You're fucking A right. Let's do it. hero oh, yes. by the Foo fucking fighters yes came out in 97 i don't know why i didn't think of it earlier but <sighs> because i'm a it's too predictable it's too predictable <laughs> that's why it's not that predictable though <sighs> i mean i thought i did think long and hard because i was like well first of all i, I hit control f on our, the word file that is our um you know top 100 list that we we have and i'm like and i did foo <laughs> there was no match there's no foo so i thought you know maybe maybe 
Maybe Entertainment Weekly would include the color and the shape. You'd think. No, Foo Fighters are not in these top 100s. Maybe it's deep down on the NMEs because, you know, Foo Fighters, you know, are, you know, play. They feel, they'll, they feel Wembley. They, yeah, they yeah. feel it. Yeah. They feel the Enormo Dome. Yeah. So, uh, but no, I mean, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think about this, the Foo Fighters in the same context as Jeff Buckley, as being like sincere, hmm. emo- sincere emotion, you know. Oh, yeah. With a little bit of a wink, but not as much of a wink as, say, Pavement. And and I like, like pavement, pavement fine, but back then, at that time, I was like, I don't know, this stuff seems a little too... John Ashbery lyrics set to music with a wink and a bunch of, you know, people from private liberal arts colleges, you know, dancing along to it seemed a little too ironic for my taste then. Now I'm seeped in irony and I love Pavement Fine, but boy, this is the Foo Fighters. Yeah. And I, but I, I don't think musically they're not winking. Uh, I feel like they're winking in those videos. Oh yeah, well I think you know that, what I mean. So I don't think it's like I'm uh, not a fan of their, their I'm not a fan of their comedic vide- videos. Well, that's I, but I really that's the winking not. that I'm that yeah. I, you know because I don't yeah. th- I think that you're absolutely right. They are absolutely earnest, and this is uh, even lyrically capturing some of those soaring '70s rockers. Yeah, you know that's, that's definitely where Dave Grohl's feet are planted. But with a, more than a soupçon <laughs> of of yeah. uh, alternative you know uh punk uh chord progressions i mean this yeah. is this is husker do nirvana was a little influential i think so i think so <laughs> I think that might be but fun. i think but i think like you know when you think of like could you be the one by husker do like uh, or anything from um uh flip your wig where bob mold and sugar that that sh- that first sugar album is is fantastic and it's it's where alternative rock kind of becomes my term would be unafraid of actually sounding well produced and trying to, you know, have more than thirty people in the club appreciate what they're doing. You know, like or maybe more confident, or I don't know. I don't know. Those are the words I end up reaching. Yeah, but, for, yeah. thoughts I reach for when I think of alternative stuff becoming popular. Of course, when you look at the top one hundred singles from '97, you're like, oh no. But that that, that leads to things like some bad watered-down versions of it, like Third Eye Blind, the aforementioned Verve Pipe, and Savage Garden. I want to, say, I want to go on record saying the Verve Pipe's photograph un- unimpeachable.
I love the Verb Pipe Depression song. I used to listen to that and just be depressed. <laughs> That's your theme for today, but besides that... Uh, it's my theme. This is this is back to trying to make guitars sound as, as large, <laughs> you know, and as space-filling uh, as these... Again, I think these bands from the 70s. And or, not just one guitar, Haas. Not two guitars. Depends on the album, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's three guitars. Mm. How do you even tune them all together? You know, <laughs> that's, that was well. a, that's a problem <laughs> for me. <laughs> that makes my small little brain go whoa. But boy, I mean, this. The, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, I've listened to this album in full all the time. But there's it, for me, it, there, it's about some of these essential tracks, you know? Mm. And so my hero for me is an essential track. One of the best songs of the nineties easily. Yeah. And ever long, by the way, Oh, actually it, it, speaking of non winking videos though, that I think directed by Michelle Gondry, who does all those great, crazy videos from the nineties, but that's a really fantastic track off, off let's, this album let's, as well. Let's play a little ever long. All right. Okay. Let's do it. Was ever oh, we're back yet? Yeah, ever, ever, ever long. long. Absolutely. 
And, and you uh, mentioned a re- you mentioned the reissue, didn't you, or something? That you said this was going to be one that was reissued. Well, for me, the re- when I think of this album, I think of some of the, the non-album B-sides that I love so much. But before before I get to that, yeah. which um, and I'm not sure if it's fair, like according to our ground rules, if we mention the B-sides or if we mention <laughs> the reissue tracks or whatever. Right. But one of the things that solidified my love of Everlong for sure is the acoustic version. Is the acoustic version. And I'm pretty sure it was the version that was on the Howard Stern show that 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 became popular and then eventually they recorded, they recorded it properly it, yeah so i have the primed up here the acoustic version from howard stern will play a little snippet of that but i think uh you know we talked about going from acoustic to electric or electric back to acoustic or i, I think this is the the unplugged version that that becomes uh, as popular if not more popular than the the full band version yeah which again strange just insofar as that song is really great already in the version yeah, that it's yeah. in uh, and the intensity of those guitars. But even as it was playing, right, we did talk about this bit of a disconnection between the um, uh, driving beat of that and the and the pining, you know, lyrics. Yeah. So yeah. maybe maybe you know, maybe it's a better match. Maybe that's why this maybe, acoustic maybe think, version worked better. I'm not even sure if I thought about the lyrics so much in the uh, the full band version, but certainly I thought about the lyrics with the acoustic version. the two hit tracks i mean monkey wrench is on there and there's a um you know do you have favorite tracks from this album you know actually i was just gonna i can't believe i know this album this 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 well but i mean i think you said that a few a few podcasts ago that it, it almost feels like the foo fighters are the like one of the only rock bands people around. say that it's not just me i mean it's i not, think oh, it's not and just I think you. Be, and i think people I say it in a depressed way i think people say that like jesus christ all we got are the Foo Fighters. And I, and I, I mean, think, there's Mastodon or whatever. I mean, there's plenty of you know metal around. But Royal Blood, yeah, that's but another they, one. And it's good; they're great. But yeah, uh, but, I think, but it's not a. They're not a rock band. Like you know, this is not Bad Company or something. I mean, this is <laughs> this is not rock. 
I think the other reason, and I think that the other thing that feeds into it is that they're sort of like a, a like a band jukebox. You know, they play so many cool cover tunes, like live. You know, they they do Tom Sawyer live, they do Queen songs live, which just tugs right. at my heart. You know, and, uh, I, and right off the heels of this album, they covered uh, Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Not on the heels, baby. This was a B side. That was a B side of my hero. Well, here you go. And we're gonna we're gonna play a little bit of it right now. Gonna, this is yeah. the moment. I would, well, you asked me that question. I was going to say um, that when I think about that song list, that I, I really, I really quite. Even though I like the rockiness, I really like "See You" on that um, mm-hmm. album. You, you know, it, again, when uh, they sound like Paul McCartney, just, just for a little while. I think. Uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not 100 on the Foo Fighter train. You know, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty much a greatest hits guy when it comes to them, which is enough in a way. I mean, there's a lot of really great tracks, you know, but when they did a sort of a one acoustic side or one one acoustic album and one electric mm, album, mm-hmm. for me, it's always the happy medium. I'm not like a big uh, screamo Foo Fighters fan. I'm not a huge like acoustic for the sake of acoustic. You know. I'm very picky when it comes to my Foo Fighters, but I, lo- I, I, I tell you, I got to tell you, I love all the covers. I mean, and the first one for me, I think it was all on an EP, was their version of Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Yeah, it's fantastic. Not only that, but Gary Newman's Down in the Park, but their version of the Vanity Six track is, is just great. And it's just, I'm just like, wow, they, they get me. You know, I always love I always love Baker Street when I hear it when I would hear it in a you know on on you know AM rock or whatever yeah, it just yeah. it just cuts and you know this is by Jerry Rafferty who was in Steeler's Wheel yeah and uh, stuck in the middle with you uh, which is you know from that Quentin Tarantino uh, Reservoir Dogs Reservoir Dogs <laughs> but, right but a hit before that yeah well, yeah but a hit before that and mm-hmm. and Baker Street's just super super track so and I'm gonna, that and that uh, iconic tenor saxophone uh part which is almost is like the, here now done and by electric guitar which which you which you never knew you wanted but then <laughs> when you hear it <laughs> your dreams have been fulfilled all right let's let's do it let's do all it. right
espressos. Oh, as far as I'm concerned, the Foo Fighters got inside my brain, into my 45 rack, and my album collection. <laughs> and, you know, I was a big fan of Down in the Park. I bought like a Two Bay Army compilation or reissue or whatever. So I really loved that particular old Gary Newman track. Right. I mean, I was like, get out of my brain, man. And of course, I'm a huge Prince fan, you know, as all, you know, sentient beings should be, <laughs> particularly his, you know, very uh, productive, you know, just before and just after Purple Rain period. Right. That's just great. And these came out at that time contemporaneously. They weren't like a reissue type thing. But, and I, uh, I want to say that uh, Foo Fighters been uh, very un-American in their Sonic Highways project where they have... You know, gone to all these cities and talked about the sound of specific cities. You know, in a few of our episodes, we've talked about how the it, you know the English music scene it, is obsessed with uh, music coming from a specific city. Like you know, yeah. uh, it's like you know uh, the Manchester sound. Yeah, Joy Division from yeah, Manchester, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Steve, El, we'll, we can circle back to Steve Albini because you know, basically, uh, you know. Basically, Dave Grohl gives Steve Albini like a rim job, like in the in their episode. Like Steve Albini, you're great, and you know that's fine, you know, because Steve Albini needs needs love. He, he needs to be hugged. He does. He does. Like a big hug. Just say it's okay. It's okay. But but you know, if I were to say, you can take those overalls off. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I think you know where the Foo Fighters are from, but we generally don't do that in America at all, right? Yeah, you know, we don't say Aerosmith. From Boston, so you watched that whole series. I did. I mean, I snapped it up right away. It's it's great. yeah. It's I, great. I see the DVD also has extra. Oh really? Yeah, it's like significantly longer. And, so, and I think that's and, and what a great but but what a great project to. Say. And I think it's also part of the narrative of them being like the 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 keeper of the the rock flame. Yeah, that's exactly you know? right. And, and which is which is totally fine. I, I'm totally happy with the Foo Fighters keeping the rock flame going. Um, you know, as opposed to. I don't know who who else is is around. You know, Arcade Fire, <laughs> Christ, Funereal, <laughs> their first album. I don't think I don't think they're you know rocking keeping... out with their socks out. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it's it, it's a great album. I think like time capsule wise for the late '90s, you know, this is where you know alternative rock went stadium rock. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I'm sure there was bef- things before, but, but for well, me, well, there's also the moment where that whole thing became a question of why we, why have we been living like this? Yeah, <laughs> right. That there was actually there, there were two different lists, the alternative lists, right, and the or the college radio list they would call it, right, yeah. and the and then the the Hot 100, which was the just yeah. the Billboard whatever it was. I way prefer college radio as a term as opposed to like alternative, right. Because basically, these people, you know, for the most people, listen to this stuff in college, and then they go back to, yeah, then they listen to Jimmy Buffett or something for the rest. But of radio them. stations still use it, right? Like it's uh, alternative radio. Do they? I mean, they I, do. I guess yeah. That's that's kind of heartening, I guess. Yeah, that it's still whatever there. that would mean at this point. It, <laughs> it was already a questionable back then. Should we should should we go out on the original version of Baker Street? <laughs> Can we? <laughs> we can and will. And should Jerry Rafferty, R.I.P. Yeah, and he—I mean—he just got screwed by the music business. I think that was like one of part of his story. Yeah, that's right. But you know, he could have went on like a review tour. But now he get his due. Should by us playing playing the song. We're rehabilitating Jerry Rafferty's career. As if they—he'll move some coffees after his podcast. 
All right, so when we get back, uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, about ourselves. <laughs> You're trying to give our listeners an audio clue. Excuse me? <laughs> of what we're covering next time. I'm in character right now, so... I think I'll steal Louis Armstrong's voice. <laughs> and wear I, a pork pie hat. If I had to pick one, I think this would be the one... If you had to pick one of my albums, Eric, one of you your, would pick Rain Dogs? That's right, Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> I would pick Rain Dogs. Boozy, boozy, bop. Zitty, bop. <laughs> I never ever saying that. And I, I <laughs> theoretically, from enemy enemies list. I remember Bruce when he was first starting out. <laughs> Asbury Park. <laughs> but this one's more than to run. We were both trying to bang Crystal Gale. Not accomplished said fact. <laughs> Should I break character? <laughs> Please. <laughs> We're, you, we're just we're hemorrhaging. We're a, we are hemorrhaging listeners at this point. Listen, I'm the one who's from New Jersey, okay? So right. why do you get to do Born the Run? Well, listen to me. I don't, thankfully. Uh, this is actually Born to the Run. Born to the Run. Born to... <laughs> that's the hip-hop. To the Born to the Run. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's, it's, it's a... It's a um, we get a Mojo Swamp. Hey, hey, hey! Mojo Swamp. Mojo. I like it! Next oh, week. All right. go back. I do, and I. It, it, so, uh, born to run. I hope. I hope the boss is foisted upon you later. 
can I just do do spiritualized the spiritualized? Do they play kazoos? Like what? Well, we haven't said it yet. I, so oh, next week That's I'm doing Mojo Swap. Spiritualized, ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space. Do you know this? Al- know you, do you, you know this album? Of, of course, you course know. I know this album. That's why you picked these lists because you knew every I single rigged, one. I rigged it. I totally rigged it. So <laughs> no, I, I I don't know if no, I know spiritualized. You're 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 a Mojo lover. This is Mojo's pick. It's not. I didn't pick it. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, but yeah, they're yeah. about. They're right. <laughs> is it a good album? It's a good album. All right, I'm gonna start listening to it. I'll save it on my, uh, my and that, uh, Spotify, and and, the, and we're gonna stay in the '90s. That leaves me with a kicker pick from 1991. I have no idea. Well, there's a lot there though. That's the year punk broke, isn't it? Like you know that uh, documentary, the the year punk broke. Right. Yeah. So I have lots of punk music to pick from. There's still a lot of vital '70s rock being produced. By those bands in 1991, I mean ill-fated attempts to go grunge. You know, what what I would love for you to pick. This is what I would oh, love for you. To all right, pick I'm ready. From 1991 is something by a like now recently de-haired hair metal band trying to go a little more raw. Like now they wear like you know black leather. You know, <laughs> like when Soundgarden got their hair or something that kind of. No, no, no. I'm talking about the opposite. I'm saying like when Warrant, like just, you know, or Poison or, you know, even Twisted. I think they all went like a little grungy. Slaughter cut their hair. Yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) they they do. They did. (laughs) Don't you know this? They all tried like their last hair metal gasp. Or actually, they probably still were still going on in 1991, but then they eventually all tried out. (laughs) Have you ever seen the uh, NXS... Um, miniseries produced in Australia, like the biopic miniseries. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the uh, whatever it was. We need a singer in excess. No series, which was also which was great. It's fascinating. <laughs> I watch that every week. Right. But I'm talking about the I'm like, sorry, but you're not right for in excess. <laughs> every like, week, with like being dispatched exactly. in the most polite way by an Australian. And now let's play a couple in excess classics with the remainder contestants. No, this was an NXS, uh, you know, miniseries, you know, like biopic thing. And it's it's fantastic. And there's the scene where they're like in the studio, like Nirvana. I love Nirvana. We need to be more raw. This is like Michael Hutchins, like throwing a fit in the studio. Like, we do. We do dance rock, Michael. And he's Michael, like, you slink around a lot. We can't, we can't be. You're not going to be thrashing at the front of the stage anytime soon. So it's just like, yeah, it's just, it, I just, I, I, I just love slash hate all those narratives. So hopefully I'll get to not talk about any of that stuff from 1991. You'll be playing some earnest, uh, earnest 1991 alternative rock, you know, type thing. Yeah. Something but, very depressing. And, um, what's going on? Yeah. F- what's going on for the one after that? Can we just, I just want to look. Ooh. Oh, so we can, so we can ahead of time. Try and secure listeners, so you know you know the next one's going to be bad. But after that, right? Because no. we are in the eighties, and that this this yes. was episode eighty five. Yeah. Right? We, yeah, didn't, we didn't we didn't say that. We didn't say that. Sorry. Let's let's, let's uh, maybe do a. But for eighty four, yeah, it's it's one of the rare double swap outs. Double swaps. Are they both mojos? <laughs> we should have some sort of sound that goes. <laughs> ding, I mean, ding ding ding! That's the double swap. 
They're both mojo swap outs. Both, well, all the swap outs are mojos. Right, um, right. Yeah. And you're working your way up the top 100 with the swap outs. Right. So you really are... did have a, um, a, oh. an Excel sheet. Or yes, right? yes. Oh, wow. So my double swap out for 84 is... Oh, well, what was man, it? What, what, I wanted to no. do Portis Head. What was it supposed to be? I was supposed to do Holes Live Through This, which is higher up on the list. It's higher up on the list. And you were supposed to do Patty Smith's Horses, which which should probably be in the 80s. But it's not. It's higher it's up. It's not. It's higher up. And you're doing Porter Says Dummy. I love that yes. album. Yes. Do you really? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Love we'll get dummy. to bond over that next time. The, the different versions of the... I have like the whole EP of uh, Sour Time. So there's all this like sort of uh, soundtrack sounding, mm. you know, breaking right. down type stuff. It's great. All the different versions of Sour Times I, I signed on for. The reggae version, the... The Michael Bolton guest vocal <laughs> version. It sounds like this is one of these another one of these episodes where maybe it'd be better if it would have been flipped. Oh yeah. Do you, do you know DJ Shadows? I know. And introducing. I I believe I do, and I know this through uh, Stoner Friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Stoner Friends. Stoner hip hop friends. Stoner Stoner witches. Yeah, they'd be like, you have to listen. <laughs> Wait, to that's the Melvins. That's the Melvins. <laughs> the Melvins aren't on this, are they? <laughs> but they damn well should be. Bullhead should be on here somewhere. I I, should, I, I might pick Bullhead or uh, it Houdini. Might it might yeah. happen. And then after that, there's a non uh, one where, uh, oh, good, James Brown and the Jungle Groove. Yes. All right. All right. An anthology. You're giving it all away. Sorry. Well, no, people know about. This this list will be up on the web, right? Okay, well, uh, yeah. So so eighty four. That's what our ones are for next episode and only next episode here on Album Oriented. Thanks for being here. I'm Daniel Nestor. I'm Herr Kurtz. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, and we're gonna get back to our lives now. All right. <laughs>